0: All right, good morning. Listen, if your phone is going to go off during something, I mean, have a better ringtone, but anyway. This weak Android ringtone. get you know, something cool. All right, we're in Matthew. I'm not listening. We're in Matthew chapter 6, and uh, we're going to look at verses 19 through 34. So open your Bibles or navigate on your device with your volume turned down or off to uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. The topic there, Jesus tells us how we should act in the world if we are seeking first the kingdom of God. The title of our message, Actions Seek Louder Than Words. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would remove any uh, distraction in our hearts from hearing what you would speak to us today. This is a precious time, it's a sweet time that you have set aside to meet with us, obviously as a group, Lord, but also individually. We want to hear what the Spirit says to our church and to each of us as members of your church, as Christians who love you and are the called according to your purpose. And we also pray, Lord, that if there's any one or more persons here today on this property that don't know you in a saving way, maybe they think they do, but they really don't, or maybe they know that they don't, that your spirit would woo them, would show them your embrace of love on the cross, and that they would come to Christ. Use these words that you've spoke to your disciples so many centuries ago to enliven our hearts and fill our spirits this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. I'm going to recite a list of five companies. What do they have in common? Chick-fil-A, Interstate Battery, Tyson Foods, In-N-Out Burger, Hobby Lobby. It's a rhetorical question. They have in common that they publicly proclaim Jesus Christ. Both Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby are closed on Sundays, as a nod to setting it aside as a day of worship. The Interstate Battery website openly encourages you to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You can read the gospel there. Tyson Foods offers its employees on-site chaplain services and is known for donating massive quantities of food to America's poor in and out Burger prints the Bible reference, John 3.16 on its cups for everyone to see. The milkshake cup references Proverbs 3.5. Burger wrappers have Revelation 3.20. Defying all conventional wisdom in a highly competitive business environment, they each have determined to openly preach the gospel. I should say that their founders made that determination. We applaud them for it, holding them up as examples of Christian courage in our counter-Christian culture. Now, what they have done on a national and international level started on a personal level when each of them obeyed Jesus' command to seek first the kingdom of God. It started in hearts focused on rewards in heaven rather than riches on the earth. It involved an assurance of God's providence that overcame personal anxiety. The founders of those companies are average believers like you and I. They're no different from us and that means we are no different from them. We may never found a Christian company but we are expected to seek first the kingdom of God at whatever company we work for or in whatever company we keep. As we build up to verse 33 which commands us to seek first the kingdom of God we can ask ourselves two probing questions. Number one, Would you say that you are pursuing rewards or riches? Number two, would you say you are prone to assurance or to anxiety? Verses 19 through 24, let's ask, would you say you are pursuing rewards or riches? It's going to help to keep in mind that Jesus was speaking to folks who thought that worldly riches were a sign of spirituality. The wealthier you were, the more God must be blessing you for being so spiritual. And I would add that this is a common um, thought even today, even among Christians. Well, here's what Jesus had to say about that. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. If you are rich on earth, it is no sign that heaven is blessing you. For one thing, all of your earthly wealth is fragile. Clothing was a major measure of wealth in ancient times. It could be quickly ruined by moths. Rust refers to something being eaten away. And here it probably means mildew or rodents eating your storehouses of grain. And then finally, thieves can easily break in and steal any other valuables. And so these are the, these are the way, this was the way riches was uh, measured in those days. Clothing, uh, storehouses of grain, and then gold, silver, valuables, things like that. All of them very tenuous, very fragile. Closer to home... The recent recession is said to have wiped out two decades of Americans' wealth, plummeting 40% from 2007 to uh, to 2010. And so we understand how fragile and tenuous worldly wealth is. It's kind of silly when you think about it to suppose that worldly wealth is the best that God can do to reward you. It isn't the best he can do. He can reward you in heaven, and those treasures are secure both now and forever. And so right away, Jesus is elevating our thinking. He wants us to approach life on earth from a heavenly vantage point. My time on earth isn't to be wasted only accruing temporary riches. It's to be spent getting eternal rewards. And so verse 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If what you treasure the most is in heaven, then that is where your heart is gonna be, meaning that's what will determine the direction of your life and the decisions you make along your way. If what you treasure the most is on the earth, then that is where your heart will be, meaning that is what will determine the direction of your life and the decisions you make along your way. I should, therefore, be able to look at my life my decisions and the direction I'm headed and determine where my treasure truly is. Now, I can only look at my life. You're gonna need to look at yours. I, 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 we like to look at each other's lives and make our own determination of direction and decisions. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't look for fruit in people's lives, but this morning we'll just concentrate on your own life. Look at it honestly and objectively. Is there evidence in your direction and by your decisions that you are actually pursuing heavenly rewards? Or is the direction of your life and your decisions motivated more by earthly goals and worldly concerns? Or well, Jesus emphasized what he was saying by giving two examples. This will help us to think this through. He said in verse 22, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now we need to approach this illustration culturally, not scientifically. Jesus wasn't giving us an anatomy lesson. Two verses from Proverbs put the Jewish understanding of I into context. This is what Jesus meant. uh, Proverbs 22, verse 9. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. Proverbs 28, 22. A man with an evil eye hastens after riches and does not consider that poverty will come upon him. The good eye Jesus mentioned belongs to a generous person who looks to give to the causes of the kingdom of God because his heart is set there. The bad eye identifies the person who accrues riches for himself because he treasures things that are earthly. And simply put, no matter how spiritual a person thinks he or she is, if they are pursuing riches More than rewards, if they prioritize riches over rewards, they are walking in darkness. And it is a very dark darkness because they think they're in the light. You know, there's different degrees of darkness. You know that. You get up in the middle of the night and usually there's some light to go by. Then you go up into Biden caves or Boyden caverns, I forget what it's called up there in the mountains, and they turn off all the lights and you're in pitch black and you start screaming after three seconds. You want your mommy. Except there's always one little kid who has those glow-in-the-dark shoes and is going like that. And his parents just won't stop him, you know. And so anyway, it's just crazy stuff. And so, so there are people who think, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely on the, the right track. I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian. And, and the Lord says, well, you could be in a, you know, if you're not really investing in the kingdom and if you're not prioritizing rewards over riches, you're just walking in a kind of darkness that you think is the light. And that's a very dark place to be. And then Jesus gives a second illustration to build on that when he says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now mammon is just a general term for money and property, what we might call wealth. Uh, Jesus wanted to be as broad as possible so that we wouldn't, you know, because we like to get narrow and say, well, he only mentioned money. And so money is all he was, con- or he only mentioned property, or he only mentioned something, so uh, this doesn't affect everything else. He says, no, this is just the attitude of where your thinking is at. He says you can't serve God in terms of uh, going after rewards and also uh, serve riches in terms of being somebody who prefers earthly wealth. And he wants you to think in terms of slavery. You can be employed by more than one employer, but you can't serve more than one master. This verse is another help to us as we determine whether rewards or riches are our real priority. You see, it is all too easy to think I can pursue both at the same time. For example, I might think I'm a good Christian because I work hard and don't embezzle money from my company. But do I evangelize my company? Am I seeking to make an impact for Jesus wherever I am? Or do I buy into the thinking that my workplace is no place for my faith to be revealed because I I could rock the boat or get into a little bit of trouble? Am I I content to put in my time staying under the radar, spiritually speaking, and build wealth and a career that have little or nothing to do with Jesus going to church on the side and effectively living two separate lives? Now, this is why we can only judge for ourselves because God wants to scatter us everywhere as Christians. Every profession, every walk of life that isn't immoral and and by itself wicked. God says, I need Christians there. But he mostly needs them to be more than just good Christians who don't tell anybody about him. He needs them to be pushing the envelope a little bit, figuring out how, okay, Lord, now that you've scattered me here, how can I seek first the kingdom of God and walk with you in such a way as to make a difference so that people know that there is a God and that his name is Jesus Christ. That's the idea. The founders of the four companies I mentioned decided to represent Jesus and further his gospel. I don't know all of their testimonies, but at some point, either before or after they founded their companies, they said, we're gonna do what we're doing for the Lord, and here's what we're gonna do to say we're Christians and we don't care what... The result of that is they made a conscious effort to determine how they could use their company or its products and services to let the world know about Jesus. And that's all I'm saying. Make a conscious effort to determine how you in your company or in the company you keep can let others know about Jesus Christ. It hasn't been easier without controversy for the founders of those companies. Both Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby have been in the news for taking a stand for what they believe. But be honest, those of you who know the Chick-fil-A and the uh, story and the Hobby Lobby story, I don't wanna go into it right now, but a lot of Christians follow this in the news. You got excited for them, didn't you? God bless them. Chick-fil-A for making that stand and for saying what he said and Hobby Lobby for going against this immoral government and all that. Well, that's you. See, where you work, that, that needs to be you and I where we work. Now, I'm not telling everybody to go out and lose their job. <laughs> but you're probably not going to lose your job right away <laughs> when you bring your Bible to work. Here's, I got, here's an idea. I, if this were me, I was thinking, well, what would I be doing right now? I would probably have quit bringing my Bible to work only because I've got 100 Bibles on my iPhone. And, and it's easier to reference and all that. And I am think, well, I should still bring a Bible to work and put it on my desk and, and wait until my boss says, get that thing off of your desk and then figure out what I'm going to do about it. Or Christian jewelry or Christian bumper stickers or Christian witness track. I should hide tracks all over the office. There's something I should take Calvary magazines and put them places until somebody, I mean, you know, I'm not saying go out and defy authority or get fired, but every now and then, you got to get called into the office and somebody has to be exasperated saying, would you quit sharing Christ? It's just, this isn't the environment for it. And then you can decide if you want to lose your job or not. You can say, well, okay, Lord, I'm making a difference here, so I'll, I'll come up with a new strategy. And I believe that God, who is pretty smart, can give you a lot of really neat strategic ideas about how you can promote your Christian witness uh, at work in a, in a more powerful way than maybe you are. And even if you are an even more powerful way than you are. So it's, it's on a sliding scale. So maybe you're not doing anything at work. People don't even know you're a Christian. If, if somebody came and said, hey, you see Gene, do you know he, he's a Christian and goes to church? He pastors a church. That guy? Well, you want to change that, obviously. On the other hand, you might be an evangelist. You might have John 3, 16 stamped into your forehead. There might be some other things that God could have you do as well. This is the thing that Jesus is talking about. It hasn't been easy for those companies and it might not be easy for you, but that's what we're called to. Great is your reward in heaven when you seek first the kingdom of God. Now in the remaining verses, would you say you are prone to assurance or to anxiety? Dr. Walter Cavert, who must be a smart guy because he's a doctor, he did a study of the things we worry about. He discovered 40% of the things we worry about never happen. That alien invasion that I'm <laughs> bothers me, you know, during the power shortage, didn't you immediately think we were being attacked by aliens? Uh, That's it, see, I want, I I love you, sister. 30% she said, how do you know that we weren't? Yeah. (laughs) Once you get into this conspiracy stuff, there's no bounds. 30% of our worries concern the past, which is stupid when you think about it. 12% of our worries are needless worries about our health in the hypochondriac realm. 10% of our worries are insignificant or petty. Only 8% of what we worry about would be considered legitimate trouble. Now, these next verses mention worry in some form or another six times. It's the word from we would get our word anxious or anxiety. When Jesus says do not worry, it can be translated don't give anxious thought to these matters. Let's get something out of the way. Even the greatest saints have been prone to anxiety. The Apostle Paul, who would exhort us to be anxious for nothing spoke of certain anxieties he had. For example, his anxiousness to hear news of the condition of the fledgling church in Thessalonica. I don't want anyone to leave here condemned because you worry. I'm not saying worry is okay either. The point is to realize you are prone to worry when you could just as easily be prone to the assurance that God is overseeing your life on the earth. You can be prone to assurance because of the doctrine of God's providence. Henry Thiessen, theologian and author, defined God's providence by saying, and I quote, providence is that continuous activity of God whereby he makes all the events of the physical, mental, and moral realms work out his purposes, and that this purpose is nothing short of the original design of God in creation. To be sure, evil has entered the universe, but it is not allowed to thwart God's original, benevolent, wise, and holy purpose. God is working to an ultimate purpose in the universe and in your life and my life. And we know what that purpose is. It is to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. We are promised in scripture that once you are a Christian, it is predestined that you will be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He that has begun a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus That's God's providence and he is at work. And so verse 25, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Now people in the first century lived right on the edge, like most of the world today. They did worry a lot about their daily necessities because everything was precarious, This statement by Jesus would be an absolute revolution to them. Anxiety about things was a way of life. How could you not worry? Well, for one thing, Jesus says here that life is more than physical. It is more than food and clothing for my physical body. His point is that life essentially is spiritual. If I can really lock into the understanding that I am a spiritual being, that I will live forever. My concerns about the physical necessities of life will cease to cause me as much anxiety because my focus will be on the spiritual and the physical will become subordinate to that. Look at the birds of the air, verse 26, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? First, let me point out that birds work very hard for their food. They don't just sit around waiting for food to come to them. But the point is God is capable in any situation of making an abundant provision. That's what he's saying. He says, look at the birds. They're not farming, but there's a sense in which God provides for them or is able to provide for them. That's the point. Now, it also means that if God doesn't make an abundant provision, that must be his providence to withhold. We don't like that part of it. And so we see God's pro Oh, God is able, God is providing. God is also able to withhold provision when he deems it necessary. The idea Jesus is getting to is that your spiritual leave the physical to God, work hard, do what you're supposed to do, and then God will take care of the rest. There's no promise here that I will never go hungry or be in need. The promise is that God knows my needs and is able to care for me. Read Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, the end of that chapter where it talks about some of the dearest saints the world has ever known, impoverished, running for their lives, living in caves, starving to death, God was able and capable of taking care of them, and that's what he did in his providence for them at that time. We're intrigued by actors who radically prepare for certain roles. Robert De Niro gained 60 pounds to play aging boxer Jake LaMotta in the film Raging Bull. Christian Bale, perhaps best known for being the most recent Batman Normally weighs 185 pounds. He lost 63 pounds for the lead role in a movie called The Machinist. One of them gorged, the other starved. Both did what was necessary in order to be conformed into a certain image. God knows whether you need a gorging or a starving in order for you to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Either way, there's no use being anxious about it. My only concern ought to be to keep myself in the will of God for my life. Which of you, verse 27, by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Now, no short jokes here because Jesus probably had in mind length of life, not your height. Anxiety over my daily needs won't give me any more days. In fact, doctors will tell you that it will cut days off of your life. There might be a hint too here of the fact that God knows the number of my days. He plans accordingly, providing just what I need when I need it in order to be conformed day by day into the image of Jesus Christ. I can't see the calendar of my life there's those calendars, Pam is using one right now, where you can put a picture on every day of what was happening in your life, you know, on that day. It's, it's pretty fun. If I, I don't know the calendar of my life, but when, if I could, and I did, and, and the Lord and I look back on it, I would probably understand more about what is happening uh, in the calendar of my life on a particular day when God was doing something or withholding something because I would see how many days I had or what was coming along the way. That's the idea here. And so God knows the number of my days and when I need to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in a particular way. Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? No promise here that I will constantly be clothed like Solomon. In fact, I might find myself someday using duct tape to hold my shoes together. Either way, there's no use in being anxious about it. It's unlikely Jesus was chastising anyone in particular for having little faith. The idea, that a person, uh, the idea is that a person who is anxious about daily needs doesn't understand God's providence and they need to grow in their faith. Jesus once said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's the kind of mind he was suggesting to his disciples in this Sermon on the Mount. He wasn't saying you'd always have abundant physical resources. He wasn't saying you'd always be impoverished. He was saying that you are essentially a spiritual being, prioritize accordingly, knowing your father is able to provide. Verse 31. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. By Gentiles, Jesus is meaning unbelievers. Since God is your Father, you need not concentrate on physical needs. You've been set free to live spiritually. Now, let me me pause now and say this at this point you can save, you can have insurance, you can plan for retirement. That isn't the Lord's point. He's not saying to live in poverty. Uh, He's not even saying to live the way he lived without a house and with no place to lie down and with no income. He's not saying that. Um, He's His point is that those things must be secondary to you, second to him, and second to furthering his kingdom. And and quite honestly, when you read commentaries on this passage of Scripture, all of the commentators are too quick to jump in and say, well, yeah, Jesus said this, but there's all these uh, different kind of things about uh, you know finances and financial planning and the proverbs and all that and so and they almost discredit in a way what Jesus was saying. So you can do all of those things, you can plan for your future, you should, not you can, you should. But everything should be subordinate to seeking first the kingdom of God. One commentator said, you must replace your earthly pursuits with goals of great kingdom significance. Jesus says it better in verse 33 when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. The kingdom of God is simply the rule of God. Yes, there will be a literal kingdom on the earth in the future. Yes, Jesus was offering that kingdom to the Jews. But his kingdom is anywhere you submit to him as your king. And it is everywhere that you determine to reveal him as your king. His righteousness is probably a reference to the Beatitudes earlier expounded upon. They are the spiritual actions you are capable of Uh, while you're on the earth because of his indwelling Holy Spirit. And all these things, meaning the things God knows you really need, the physical things, they'll be added to you. When you add something, it's because it was missing. If I'm cooking, the recipe keeps telling to add the next ingredient. God knows what to add to my life, and he knows when to add it. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, whoever I'm with, I'm to consciously seek first the kingdom of God, walk in the righteousness made possible by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. What can I do right now, right here, to further the gospel? That's the constant question I'm to be contemplating. That's the point and the purpose of these verses. And so in verse 34, he says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Each day until the Lord's coming to resurrect and rapture the church, there will be plenty of trouble that I can worry about if I let myself. Jesus doesn't say it here, but I will. I could die before tomorrow. Why spend today worrying about a tomorrow that will never come? I mean, seriously, what kind of worries would you have if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? It would kind of well, I, I understand, but it would kind of relieve you of most of the things you're actually worried about. You say, because why? I can't do anything about them. I'll be dead. And so Jesus said, you know, yeah, he, he, he anticipates an argument that, well, Jesus, you know, some of these things are long-term. Uh, what about this and what about that? And when, when I get here and when I get at this milestone, he says, hey, don't worry about that either. Plan, prepare, do all of that, subordinate it to the kingdom of heaven You don't even know how many tomorrows you have. And you don't know if things might dramatically change by tomorrow, making all my worrying today a foolish expenditure of time and thought. Again, there are plenty of financial verses that discuss future planning. Jesus isn't canceling any of them out. But we don't want to be too quick to dismiss what he says here in favor of our finances on the earth. He was saying that everything needs to be interpreted through the principle of seeking first the kingdom of God. And really, If you look at it, I believe anyway, the financial planning recommended in the Bible always suggests giving to God first and being generous to meet the needs of others. That is, any solid financial planning has to be based on giving to God first and being generous in meeting the needs of others and then trusting that God will take care of you. And it's just sad that even so much Christian financial planning tells you to build wealth first and get to a certain point, and then maybe you can start thinking about helping others and giving to the kingdom of God. And I just think that isn't what Jesus said. If you can read something and then where Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, um, they need to be in agreement with each other. Most of us are prone to a certain amount of anxiety. Even people who think that they're pretty worry-free, there are always things that, in particular, you worry about. Jesus assures us that God is our very capable Father, working all things together for our good. We need to believe that He is able to provide. Just remember that what we need most is always spiritual. It is to grow spiritually, and God is at work And one of the realms he works in, obviously, is the realm of our physical needs in order to bring out our spiritual best. Make sure that your plan for the future looks beyond the 70 or 80 years you might have to live on this earth. Plan into forever, spend and invest in the kingdom of God. Let's pray.